Hello, folks. I'm Bradley Jay, and with us is Doug Arion, who is a physicist. Now, there is a bit of a delay, so I will ask a question and get a, you know, a complete question and then get an answer. And I won't interject much because of the delay. But I've been watching a lot of science programs lately, like The Mysteries of Matter. And I, and I see uh, some things explained, like how do they know? They give you some facts, and I say to myself, how do they know that? They don't go deep enough into the, look, if you're going to tell me these premises, I need to know how you know that. That's why Doug is here. He's graciously uh, agreed to explain how they know that. So first, let's start with some of the basics, including the age of the universe and the Earth. How do they know that, sir? Yeah, one of the amazing things about doing science is, is we can actually figure stuff out. And everything we figure out, you, you build as a ladder. You start with little things that you can easily measure, and you use that to then extrapolate to the next thing you can measure, and the next thing you can measure, and the next thing you can measure. Um, and so, you know, some things that we know are very easy to figure out. Other things are very complicated to figure out. So let's look at the age of the Earth, for example. So uh, early on until, you know, so through the 19th century, um, we knew the Earth started hot and it cooled off, and some people did a calculation for how long it would take to cool off. And from that, they figured out that the Earth had to be a few tens of thousands to a couple of million years old. And that really didn't make any sense because you could look around and see things that seemed to be a lot older than that. So that didn't make a lot of sense. And that's because they didn't know about radioactivity. They didn't know that there were radioactive elements that were helping to keep the Earth hot. So lo and behold, 20th century, you discover radioactivity and you can measure how long it takes an atom to break apart. You take a block of something, wait a while, see how much radioactivity is there, wait a while, see how much is there. And if you do that with uranium, you find out that it takes four and a half billion years for half of it to break down. Another four and a half billion years for the next half to break down and so on. So if you go out and you take a chunk of rock and you measure how much uranium is still in it, you can figure out how old that rock is. And when you do that, you find out that the Earth is about 4.6 billion years old. How do you so lo and behold, you can figure out the age by looking at those rocks. How do you uh, determine how much radioactivity is left in a rock? Okay, so um, anything that's radioactive is spitting things out, right? As it's breaking up, that's you know, radiation, right? You get radiation from radioactivity things. And you can detect that. And there are a variety of instruments that you could do that. One way would be basically the same kind of light detector you have in a camera. That light detector will detect particles and things that hit it. So it's something like that on steroids. It's a bigger device, but you can use that to actually count how many bits of radiation are coming out of a sample. So you can put it on there and you can measure it. You can measure it later and later and later and later and plot that out as a graph and say, okay, how long has it, would it take to go back to when this was all uranium? That tells you how old it is because it tells you how long it's been there breaking down. So we can use things like that to determine how old things are. So uranium takes a long time to break down. So it's really good for figuring out the age of the planet. Carbon, there's a kind of carbon, carbon 14 is called, that breaks down in tens of thousands of years 
And that's what we use to date bones, for example. So you dig up a dinosaur bone, you say how old it is, you can use carbon-14 data. How do you measure how much carbon is in a bone? Same way. We know the rate at which things you know, are taking a carbon. Remember, carbon makes up a lot of our bodies, right? All the sugars are carbon, all of our a lot of our chemistry is carbon. And so there are two forms of carbon, carbon-12 and carbon-14. So to find this, you actually take a piece of the bone and you smash it up and you heat it up so that the gases escape. And when those gases escape, you can measure how much of the two different kinds of carbon you have. And that therefore tells you how old it is. Okay, let's get so to it's the Big really Bang. Cool. How do they know that the Big Bang is real? Is it, do they really know that or is it just speculation? Because that's the only theory that fits with other information out there. A combination. We know it's there because here's this amazing thing. When you look at something, you don't see anything the way it is. You see it the way it was. It takes time for light to travel. So right now, those of you who are watching this, the image takes a few billions of a second to get from the screen to you. Now, what that means is when you look at things in space, the farther out you look, the farther back in time you're looking because it's taken that long for the light to reach you. So if you look out far enough, really, really far, you see light that's coming from the beginning of the universe, basically. It's as if you took me and put me 63 light years away, you would see me being born. I've lived 63 years, but it's taken 63 years for the light to reach me. So you're seeing me back then. So if you look out that far away, you see the first energy at the beginning of the universe. And we can map it. We've had a, created a great detailed map of it. And from that, that's one of the important pieces of realizing that, hey, guess what? The universe was very small and very hot. And we know how long ago it was because you know how far away you're looking at that point. So you put those pieces together and lo and behold, you get an age. And that it agrees with closely with the number you get when you measure how fast galaxies are running away from us and how far away they are. So the same way that if you saw a car driving away and you say, okay, it's 20 miles away and it's going 60 miles an hour, you know how long that's taken, right? So the, same, the way you figure out how long is it going to take you to drive to Framingham from downtown Boston, you know, how far away it is, how fast you're going, how long it's going to take. So if we do that with galaxies, we know how long they've been traveling. You put those two things together and you get 13.83 billion years. And that's the age of the universe, 13.83 billion years. All right, now to the, the Big Bang. And the Big Bang posits that all matter was in a tiny, tiny, super compact point and it exploded. But that seems super arbitrary to me. Why, why assume that that was the beginning? Why not assume that before the Big Bang, everything was expansive again and it had contracted down into a point to where it got so dense that something happened and it exploded. Now it's going out. But why, what's to say that it's not a cycle that happens over and over again? It's kind of easier for me to believe in an infinite cycle than everything was at a point for an infinite amount of time and then for no apparent reason it explodes. So that's a really good question. And it, there's a, one of those things where we can say, we don't know yet, okay? There are lots of, th of things in science we're still working on. 
And there were a lot of physicists who were working on, okay, what happened at that very beginning of our universe? And, and one of the scenarios is exactly what you're talking about. Is there a cyclical pattern to this? Or are there many of these puffs that occur and we happen to be in one of them? Um, there's a great uh, physicist, uh, Roger Penrose in Great Britain, who worked out what, what happens to basically all the heat, all that energy, what we call the entropy of the universe. And if it keeps expanding, where does it go? Maybe what happens is what you're saying, a universe spawns a next universe spawns a next universe. So the big question is, how would you know? And that's our, that's our whole topic today, right? Let's, let's assume you're right, and that's the picture. The universe expands and contracts and expands and contracts. How could we tell if that happens? And that's a really good question. And we don't really have a good answer to that yet, because if it was totally tiny and time was starting then, how would you observe what's before it? Or how would you observe something today that tells you that happened? And we don't know that yet. That's, that's one of the great things that makes science fun is there are great questions, right? That's one of the greatest questions. You ask one of the greatest questions that's out there. We don't know yet. Let's try to figure it out. That's a great okay. thing. It's a now, really good uh, question. This is a little more explainable. I've been watching a lot of sh shows that talk about the steps that took place when people discovered more and more about matter, that it was made up of things called atoms and that atoms weren't just a, a solid glob but had other things whipping around in them. We talk about mm -hmm. different elements having different number of electrons in different shells. Simple ones like uh, have mm -hmm. one shell. Complicated ones like uranium have a whole lot. So how do they know right. how many shells there are and how many electrons are on a shell? That's a really good question. That's something we do know a lot about. So here's the thing. An atom, which consists of a nucleus at the center, which has the protons and neutrons, and then all these electrons going around. Those electrons, as you said, have different energies, different shells. The way we know they do that is because of the way atoms put off light or collect light. So when you have something that's glowing, take a piece of iron, heat it up, look at the kind of light that comes out. The light that comes out of atoms when you heat them up is due to the fact that those electrons change their shells. An electron jumps from one shell to another. When it jumps down, it kicks light out. So if you look at the colors that an element puts out, it comes out at very, very specific energies. Each of those energies is one of those shells, never in between. It's one energy or a different energy or another energy or another energy. And you can measure those and you can see it very easily yourself. Any pr you take a prism, take a prism and look at something. Look, look at a mercury vapor lamp, like a fluorescent lamp. You'll see these individual colors come out. And each one of those colors is created when one of those electrons move. So over time, starting in 1920s through today, very precise measurements of all of those different colors, all the way from x-rays and ultraviolet and visible and infrared, all made by those electrons, you map them out. And lo and behold, that tells you what, where those electrons can be in every single atom. So we know all those. And actually, we use all those. It's not just we can measure them in things, but then you can use them. 
And lots of the things that we use are like that because we know what those energies are. Okay, here comes a kind of, this is just to check and see if I understand. I do understand for sure that uh, when a, an electron goes from one shell to another, energy is given off and that energy is given off in the form of, at least partly of, in the form of light. And you can see that light. Now, is right. it the case that mm -hmm. there's a, a specific color of light for each, like if you jump from shell number th three to four, that's a specific kind of light, a color. And that's how you that's know right. that there are right. three shells. I'll ask a bunch of questions at once. And two, does that mean that the spectroscopic signature of a simple atom with one or two shells only has a couple of lights and, and a really complicated atom has a whole bunch of lights? Because there are a whole bunch of shells with different energy levels to jump from shell to shell and therefore different colored lights? That's right. So if you look at a very, comp a very big complicated atom and you look at its spectrum, it's got hundreds or thousands of lines. And so iron, for example, an iron spectrum, there's zillions of them because iron's got a lot of electrons and each of those electrons can bounce up and down at all these different levels, many, many. If you look at hydrogen, you look at just the visible part, there are five. You can see five lines. That's it. And they're all very simple. You get to something complicated, hundreds, thousands, and because they're all combinations. It's each electron could be in each of the combinations of lines. So if you have five different levels, as you're saying, you have five to four, five to three, five to two, five to one, four to three, four to two, you know, four to one, three to two, three to one, all those combinations for each of those electrons. So you can imagine how you get many, many, many different colors out from a big atom. Okay. So since you know what, since folks know the spectroscopic signature of particular atoms, then you can look at light from stars and find, and you will know what that star is made out of. However, it's not just, the star is just not made out of one thing, I guess. The sun is not just made out of one gas. Doesn't the light from different, the spec, doesn't the light from different atoms get all mixed up how can you how can you really know what a star is made of because there's all kinds of light from different kinds of atoms coming at you well it does get complicated because if you look at the spectrum of the sun it has tens of thousands of lines in it and those lines are from actually all 92 elements and so you're right it is a complicated process and you begin by saying, okay, let's start with the first element, hydrogen, is that there? And you look for its line, you go, yes, and you put a little check mark next to it. Say, okay, the next one's helium, what lines are those? And you go and you put a check mark next to it. Okay, let's go for lithium, what are those lines? You go through a check mark, and you actually do that for every one of those atoms. And yes, it takes time, and it's a big effort. And now things are much easier because we can have computers do some of those things yeah. for us. But back in the 19th century, that's how you did it. You did it by hand. Okay. It just seemed to me that as you're looking at what you would say is a helium, wouldn't the light from some other atoms leak into your scope and confuse you and stick some extra lines in, in that so you would be misled thinking uh, you wouldn't be able to exactly tell what it is? What you do get, as you're saying, is the combination of all of them because we have a body here that has all the a whole bunch of different atoms 
all of those lines appear at the same time. Now remember, no two atoms are alike. So you will never have one line from two different atoms. Every atom will produce completely different lines. They'll never be the same. And so they may be very complicated. You may see a lot of them, but this oh. line and this line are from one thing, this line and that line are from another thing, and oh. so on. So you, you'd have to piece that all together. But okay. It's, yeah, all the lines so, are there. You have to. So is the, is, no matter, say you have different, different atoms have a first ring. A whole bunch of them have a first ring. And doesn't the first mm -hmm. ring always cause a particular color to be shot off? And, and if that's the case, then why wouldn't all atoms with a first ring, which I guess is all of them, give mm -hmm. off at least that one band of light because it's the energy to go from one ring one to ring two? Because each of those rings from every atom has a different amount of energy because the nucleus of the atom has a different number of protons. Oh. So if we look at a big atom like uranium has 92 protons, that inner electron is being pulled really strongly because it's got 92 to pull. Okay. So the amount of energy from one to two in uranium, in fact, to take um, the electron that's in the number one and take that completely out of uranium atom takes 115,000 volts. To take the electron in hydrogen, which has only one proton, and remove it takes 13 volts. So from 13 to 115,000, because you went from one proton to 92. Okay, that's excellent. I bet the whole, the nucleus, that answered my question. That's fantastic. Next, I, as I mentioned earlier, I watch a lot of science programs and I hear about Enrico Fermi. One of the things he did was shoot neutrons. When they discovered neutrons, they were psyched because neutrons didn't have a charge. So they could shoot neutrons right. at a nucleus and, they, and it, the neutron wouldn't have to battle the, the, uh, the charge, the, the magnetic opposition. So they started shooting neutrons at atomic nuclei. But I mean, they should tell me, how do you, get, how do you first get a neutron and how do you shoot it? And how do you hit, <laughs> how do you hit a nucleus? And how do you know what happens when you hit the nucleus? That's kind of a four-parter. So the first thing is radioactive elements. So these are elements that have so many protons in them, they don't like holding together because prot protons don't like each other, okay? So those atoms, all these heavy atoms, tend to split apart on their own. They're there and they want to fall apart. When they do that, neutrons come flying out. Now, as you mentioned, something important thing about neutrons is they have no electrical charge. So there's not much you can do with it. They're flying, they're gonna keep flying in a straight line. Now also coming out when this thing breaks apart are all sorts of other particles, but they're all, they all have charge on them. So I can put some electricity, I can put some grids up or a magnet up and take all the parts that had electricity with them and pull them out of the way. So that the only thing that comes through are the neutrons. Aha. And then what I can do is I can put up basically a block with a hole in it. So only the neutrons going in one direction come out. And now I have a stream of neutrons coming out. So you can actually make things, you know, utilize stuff that's putting out neutrons, collect all the other stuff, let the neutrons come out and let those run into what you want to run into. 
Now, other experiments where you shoot stuff that has a charge, like you want to shoot electrons into something or protons into something, we do something similar. We start with a source that puts these out there, and then we put a big electrical grid that sucks those particles and makes them go really fast in the direction that we want. So charged particles, we can actually move with electricity. To make neutrons, what we do is we let something make the neutrons, and then we use electricity to get rid of everything else. And the neutrons don't care, right? Electricity is pulling the protons out of the way. The electrons don't recognize it. They keep going. So you can build sources that do these things. Um, one of the things that you can do, you can take a source like a protons or alpha particles. Um, those are charged. We can use electricity. Have them smash into something and the smashing makes them break apart and spit neutrons out. Same thing, we sweep away the rest of the debris and the neutrons keep going on. So we can use pieces, we can break the atoms apart, either naturally or by smashing something into them that's easy to make and then use those neutrons farther down to do interesting things. Okay, how do they know when a neutron hits a, a nucleus and how do they know what happened as a result? So we shoot a neutron into something and most of the time that makes that atom break apart because it's similar to throwing a bowling ball into a bunch of pins. You just threw something in, shakes it up, it breaks apart. When that happens, other stuff comes out. We can detect the other stuff pretty easily because they're alpha particles, they're protons, they're electrons, and those come out, those are charged, and we can collect them. So one of the ways you find that out, for example, is you put a piece of glass next to your experiment. When one of these particles hits the glass, it puts out a little bit of light. It does that because it's going very fast. Now, that light you can't see with your eyes, but we can put a very sensitive detector, basically like a camera, a very sensitive camera next to it. Every one of those flashes of light comes out, you can count them. So you know how many neutrons you're sending in, you count how many flashes are coming out, that tells you how many of these things you hit with neutrons. And that tells you how many atoms are in the way, which helps you figure out how big the atom is, tells you how many particles. You can figure out all these pieces, but you have to do a lot of the experiments, right? You do this thousands of times, count them up, figure out a lot of cool stuff. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's very amazing. You've answered all my questions. One parting question, which is the easiest one. Do you have a, fam a, a favorite physicist in history, one that uh, resonates with you, for maybe due to his personality or his work style or her work style? Favorite physicist? Um, that's, that's really tough. I mean, there are so many who've done lots of really great and interesting and, and mind-bending things. Um, but uh, if you had to pick up some, but you know, some of the great polymaths, you know, somebody like Newton was an incredible polymath. You know, the guy who could, you know, invent the mathematics to solve the problem to understand gravity, who figured out how light is put together. You know, I, I it, it's hard to argue with uh, Newton being one of the greats. That's for sure. Certainly set us on our path to, to where we are. Doug, thank you very much, Doug Arian, physicist astronomer, cosmologists, and so much more. And good guy, lives up in New Hampshire. I'm jealous, up in Twin Mountain where the air is clear, and beautiful, and the, the mountains are real right nearby. Doug, 
hikes a lot. Someday probably go on a hike and I can find out some more info, some more physicist info. Thanks so much for your time, sir. I really, really appreciate it. I'm very happy to be here. Love uh, talking to you. Love doing the shows with you. Hopefully All we'll right. do this again soon. Okay, Doug. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now.